heard from somebody who was explaining their favorite part of solitude, and that person said, and believe me, this person is an extrovert, when it ends, when it ends, that's my favorite part. But it's not so for everybody, whether you are uh, introverted or extroverted, and let me explain. Uh, some of you have just come through a very busy Christmas season, and there's been people everywhere that aren't usually around, plus the increased activities. And you're wondering, will I ever be able to get alone again? Some of you mothers just spent two weeks with your kids out of school. They go back Wednesday, okay, to public school, moms. Oh, you know. But um, how did you get some solitude? You went into the bathroom and locked it and hid. <laughs> and that's about the only way you can get it during vacation time. Well, sometimes we have to understand that solitude is, you know, we, we desperately need it. Not only do we need it, we, we feel this inner thing in our gut that says, I need to get away from people. But you see, that is because we're able to do that by choice. We were with the people by choice, sort of. And then when they're gone, we're with ourselves. And we begin to say, I need to get away. Well, for some, solitude, isolation, and loneliness is... It's not by choice. They're forced to do it. And for some, that idea of solitude or loneliness is one of the greatest fears of their lives. Let me give you an example. In 1985, a reporter in Lebanon by the name of Terry Anderson was abducted by Shiite um, Hezbollah extremists. And he was kept in solitary confinement for six years. Six years. And as he wrote about his experience, he said somewhere along the line, he began to see his mind disintegrate. Now, he was a trained reporter. He said, I was thinking through all the poems that I had memorized in English. I was thinking through uh, mental journaling, you might say, even though I had nothing to write. I was thinking about that. I was singing songs. But he said, my thoughts became less and less significant, and I had fewer of them. And so finally, in the third year of six years, he cracks. He stands up, he goes to the cinder block wall of his cell, and he just begins to hit it against the wall until there's, you know, this blood from his head everywhere, and he's concussed, and he's about ready to pass out, and he would have kept on going if the guards wouldn't have come in because he was more uh, value to them alive than dead. And he said this at the end uh, when he writes a book about his experiences. He said, I would rather have the worst companion than no companion at all. We're not there yet, are we? We're not. Let me give you another example of isolation. Uh, This is the new technology type of of isolation. It has less serious uh, uh, results, but it still has great human insight. His name is Hal Nidzvecki. He is a writer for New York Times. In 2008, he tries a Facebook experiment. By that time, he has over 700 friends on his Facebook account, yet he feels alone. He says, I'm introverted. I'm devoted to my work at the New York Times. They're always asking for more. So his experiment is, I'm going to have a Facebook party. And he gives to all of his 700 friends the invitation to show up on a certain night at a certain bar near him. And by the by the time that that party comes, that night comes, 15 have definitely said, 
They're coming. There were 60 maybes and only a handful of the 700 said, I can't make it. Now, of course, the other 620, you know, they probably didn't even read it. So the night comes, he washes up, he spruces up, he says he puts on cologne, which he never does. And he he arrives at this uh, bar in his local area uh, a half an hour early and he waits. And he waits past the beginning time and he waits almost an hour into the expected party time. And finally, one woman shows up who is not on his Facebook list. But she's a friend of a friend. So she's on somebody else's list, and she gets the news, and she shows up. She's 20 years older than Hal. So he says, we sit down and we begin to talk, but we have nothing in common. You know, there's not much to talk about. It was really awkward. So she gets up and leaves, and then he waits for the rest of the night for the 15 definites to show up, and nobody ever comes. Now, that's not a complaint about Facebook. Barb uses it with me all the time, catches me up on friends that I, you know, that, that I really, without Facebook, I, I would know nothing about the ongoings of these people's lives. So it's not a complaint, but it is an insight into humanity. And the use of the word friend, high-tech relationships have a tendency to be quite shallow. Now you'd think, well, who are the people who have so many people around them, they look for isolation? Well, maybe the rich and the famous. Listen to these quotes from the famous people. Uh, There's such a thing as fame isolation. When uh, uh, actress Anne Hathaway, uh, Princess Diaries, uh, other things, the thing that I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for, without someone who will care for me. Henry Kissinger writes about President Richard Milhouse Nixon. The essence of this man is loneliness. Albert Einstein, you'd think, well, (laughs) you you think if you just touch him, you'll get smart, okay? He says, it's strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. And finally, from one of the most famous and unfortunately disturbed actresses in Hollywood history, Marilyn Monroe, she says, sometimes I think the only people who stay with me and really listen are the people I hire, the people I pay. We are doing an intermittent series. I'll do a couple more around Easter, but we're doing an intermittent series about facing the fears of our lives. And many of us carry around what I call a disconnection anxiety. We're called, it's called the fear of being alone in life. Some of you who have not married maybe have gone through that fear. Some of you who have become widowed uh, find yourself living, how dare you die on me and leave me all alone. I've heard that, and I understand it. The technical term for it is autophobia. I thought that was like me, afraid of cars. But no, it's afraid of being alone or by yourself. And I, the, the issue is how much isolation can we take in life, and especially forced isolation. I believe we all have what I call a unique and personal uh, isolation meters. You know, it starts here, oh, I'm fine being alone. But then as it goes on or as it becomes more intense, you know, we, we're calibrated so that eventually it reaches the danger zone. And we have to understand that from creation we learn that God's intention for us is to have community. For most of us, it will be in marriage, but 
no matter what, it's the idea of being in community. And we find that science is, is bearing this out. Uh, that too much solitude can kill our minds and our spirits. The science of psychology has concluded that continual isolation is a primary igniter, something that you know starts the fire of, of diseases like depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, suicide, and murder. And then they find out that it negatively affects our physical health too. We get sick more often if we're alone. Think about that. We're in the flu season, right? In the flu season, you do two things. You get a flu shot, and you stay away from people who have the flu. And maybe you won't get it if you do that. I sanitize my hands three or four times a day every time I go to the market, so I won't get the flu. You know what this is saying? This is saying, in addition to getting your flu shot and avoiding with the flu, you need to be around people even if they have the flu so you can avoid the flu. Figure that one out. The best way to avoid the flu is to be around people who are coughing on you. Uh, I just can't get with that science. But it's been proven. You know, the Bible richly describes characters who have been thrown into isolation, not by choice, but by circumstances. Noah was one who was spiritually alone. He had no one else around him who shared his relationship with God. The rest of creation, the rest of, uh, of the human race, did not have the relationship with God that Noah had. Moses, because of murder in his life and escaping to the Midian desert, he was 40 years in the Midian desert, far from the luxury and the elite society of Egypt. Many of David's psalms reveal an inner longing in his life for friends that he could trust. But in Psalm 142.4, he says, No one cares for my soul. That's being alone. The one I want to use today, and that we're going to be looking at a lot between now and the middle of summer, is the example of Paul. And at a certain place in his life, towards the end, Paul gets very vulnerable, sharing what's going on inside of him with one of his disciples by the name of Timothy. And in the second letter to Timothy, he writes to him just how alone he's feeling. You see, he had been in a Roman prison once, I mean, a prison in Rome, and they had released him. Now he was asked, not, not asked, but now he was returning to it, and he was returning to the uh, prison uh, under the order of Emperor Nero, uh, the prison that had the harshest conditions of all of the ones in Rome. And this is how one scholar describes it. Paul was in the Mamertine prison, stripped of his outer garments except for his tunic. He is taken to a trap door in the floor. A rope is placed under his armpits, and the guards lower him into the terrible Tullianum dungeon. Tullianum dungeon. His feet touch the floor. The ropes are drawn up. The trap door is slammed into place, slammed into place, and he is now in the dark in this dungeon. In Paul's day, the name of this dungeon was only mentioned in whispers. It's damp. It's always cold. The bed is a clump of damp straw, and the floor is heaped with human filth. There is a spring in the rock wall, so nobody has to lower water, but the air is foul. And any food would be lowered from that trap door, and it's just given enough so that you would stay alive. 
and occasionally a skin of, uh, of weak and sour wine. Some prisoners were known to have died there because they got ill and nobody cared. And it's okay, it saved an execution because that's why you were in that dungeon. Others were known to have just given up. And some were eaten by rats. Hold on to my wife because she's about ready to faint, okay, (laughs) when she hears that. Paul's physical conditions were horrible. And you might lose hope and lose a sense of purpose in life. And, 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 but, but what's made even worse is his, is his human isolation, knowing that the knowledge of a certain execution is in, you know, it's in the near future. He knows that he's there, and he probably will not come out alive. So he describes to Timothy his need for both him and his companion Mark to come to him as soon as possible. And here is how he says it in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, I begin at verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and that's it. He talks about all the people who have left him, and only Luke is there. So as he is sharing his his social condition, he gives the names of those who have said goodbye to him. It's like they've wiped him off their contact list. Paul no longer exists. Demas loves the world. But he doesn't care for Paul in his needy state. Crescens loves the the lush, fertile regions of Turkey. And Titus, the Dalmatian coastal beaches. I long to go there one of these days, okay? Actually, each of these is talking about a ministry that they have taken on. So they can honestly say, I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm just not doing it here in the dungeon with you in Rome. I feel called. I love it when missionaries come to me and say, I feel called to the needy in Hawaii. I feel called, you know, but I doubt their motives. It's very hard because I've been to Hawaii and I could be there and do no ministry. It's so much fun, especially in January, right? Mm, Great time to be there. So uh, they've all left him and each of them goes to a church that Paul has probably planted. You see, they're doing good things. They're just not doing the things that Paul needs for them to do at this moment. So Luke stays, but Paul says, I need more. It's sort of like knowing that you just have a short time to live. And it's not just saying goodbyes, but you want the companionship of a certain few people in your life. Probably first and foremost family, but but others that have meant a lot to you. So in his isolation, it is made even more intense through desertion, but also we find out through betrayal. In verse 14, it says, Alexander the metal worker did me great harm. The Lord will repay me for what he has done. Wow. So some leave him for ministry, but another stays, you might say, away after betraying him. Maybe he gave false testimony to the Roman authorities about Paul or how to find Paul. Uh, either way, Alexander did not uh, desert Paul. He betrays him. Have you ever experienced the sting of a friend 
turning you in to save his or her own skin. You feel so loved at that moment, don't you? Then you know maybe something about how alone Paul feels right now. Many have left me, but this one has done everything he can to ruin me. The term, when it says, has done me great harm, actually means has informed many evil things against me. And so like Judas was to Jesus, Alexander uh, is similar in terms of how he treats Paul. And he gives Rome everything that Rome needs to condemn Paul according to current Roman law, even if he makes it up or he twists the truth. So in times like these, what resources does God provide for the believer? What resources do you have in Christ? Where does God step in where people seem to step out? How does God provide to keep me and you and all of us connected and encouraged in times when we're feeling very isolated. He has resources. And the first is his people. What do I mean by that? He tells him in verse 21 uh, in in, uh, uh, 2 Timothy, do your best, Timothy, do your best to get here before winter. So, First, God does provide people, though they may not be the people that Paul or we are uh, continually counting on. Timothy might be months away, and Mark seems to be his companion. And when you mention the name Mark, back in Acts chapter about 13, we find out that Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas. That was 20 years earlier. But apparently in those 20 years, his trust quotient increased And now he's no longer considered a failure, but useful to Paul. Do you have any people that you can call because they've proven their loyalty to you? Mine are Christians. Yours may not be. I'm not saying we're the only ones who are loyal. I would never say that. Paul's are Christians. And they seem to be loyal to him until some have to say goodbye or want to say goodbye. But are there Christians in your life that encourage you some way in the Lord, especially when you're feeling alone? Yesterday I received a text from a friend who just said, look, my my dad just died. I had not seen that man for at least 15 years, but I knew him. And maybe I was one of the few that had seen him recently that wasn't a family member. So that text was sent to me. And what do you say? What do you do that shows loyalty? How do you strengthen someone's hand in God? Well, first of all, the comfort of our Heavenly Father was the first thing that came to mind. And then this morning I sent one of my favorite verses, Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints means God is watching over this time, not just for your dad, but everybody involved. What people of God would you text when you're isolated? What people of God? You will need them at some time in your life if you haven't yet. Second thing that's very important is God's compassion. And what do I mean by that? Well, 
God wants us not just to say, I'm going to be present there as a friend, but I'm going to look for ways in which I might be meeting your needs. Paul needs some friends, but he also needs some simple stuff that he shares. So he says in verse 13, when you come to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Understand the Roman guards know anything, know nothing about the uh, uh, human rights of prisoners. If they die in prison, that's all for the better. It just saves a little money for the state. So Paul asked for a coat. It, it's more like a one-size-fits-all poncho that they would wear. And especially as, as, as it gets colder uh, in that dungeon, as winter comes and there's even less daylight to warm up uh, the area, he needs warmth. He also asked for scrolls. I think um, Terry Anderson would have loved something to have read and not been alone. The scrolls might have been the early things that we have no record of now, but we think that they were being circulated. The sayings of Jesus. We, we believe that there was one of those before the Gospels was written. And then there's Old Testament books that Paul uses to quote uh, the, the prophecies that point to Jesus' coming. So imagine there's Timothy on that boat, and, and, and he's going from Ephesus, just off the coast of Turkey, and he has to go into the Adriatic Sea, around Greece, past Albania. Yes, you can't get to Rome without going through Albania, okay? Past Albania, and finally to the Roman coast. And so there he is with crew members and other passengers, and they're saying, well, why are you on this boat? You know, or he says, I have a coat and some books for a friend. You're making the whole trip, several weeks worth, to bring a coat and some books to a friend. Have you thought of Rome Walmart? <laughs> Wouldn't any book do? Can't you have a coat made? It's a guise, isn't it? Here's how you can help me and when you come. When you come, please bring these things. It's honest, but it's like, I need these things, but please come with them. You, Timothy. Well, there were probably some pretty strange looks, but let me just share you, uh, with you one thing that happened to us in, in the last week. We got a, uh, it wasn't a text, it was a Facebook posting, I think, Okay. Barb handled it, so it probably was. We got a Facebook posting from the Haddads who had opened the gifts that we sent in November. Um, and they opened it, and it got there really, really quickly. So they had hidden the gifts that we had sent in boxes for almost a month. And uh, <clears throat> so when they opened the gifts, they sent this news back to us that they had loved everything and it was hard to hide everything from the kids, but, but it was a, just a big hit. And But the biggest hit with the four children were the multiple boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> now look, it's France. They have cheese. They have better cheese than Kraft, Right? And they have better macaroni than crap. But for the kids, it meant everything. In fact, the oldest son, his name is Cademan, he said he opened the box, took out the boxes, the little packets of macaroni and cheese, and counted them 
and said, in the next year till they send us more macaroni and cheese, this is how often we can use them. (laughs) It turned out to be about one a month. About one a month. And knowing Cademan, he'll be the one, ah, too soon, too soon. And mom, it's time. He'll be the one to do that. Well, I, I don't know. How, when's the last time a box of macaroni and cheese made your day? But it was a felt need that many here were aware of. And believe me, when the Haddads leave here and they go back to France, they don't want to see Kraft macaroni and cheese for years. Okay? But, but this time, it had probably been over a year, and it just meant everything. That's compassion. Your compassion in sending that has made children smile and count the days until they can have the joy of mac and cheese again. You are looking at the specific needs that will bring joy. That will bring comfort. And that's God's compassion to us. There's one other thing, and that's his presence. God's very presence. And Paul speaks about this in verse 16. He says, at my defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. And then he says this, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's, it's a strange value system, and we live in a very protected country, but let me just try to explain it. My death means I get to share Jesus Christ with Gentiles. Strange value system, I, I know that, but just hear it one more time. His being in court means that he gets to share his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, his being blinded, his regaining his sight, his being shunned by so many Christians because they're afraid of him, his being finally accepted by Christians, his walk with the Lord for a period of about 30 years, and all the ways that God has provided for him. And understand, you will find that whenever Paul is put before a court, they say, what do you have to say? And this is not his first rodeo. This is not the first time in which he's been able to say, this is my story, and it's not a danger to Rome. I have not broken any laws. And as he finishes it, that's what he wants them to know. This is my story. And it says, even though I've done this time and time again, before Felix, before Herod, you know, he could just list the time. Even though I've done it time and time again, each time and again this time, the Lord stood with me. I don't know if you've ever had experiences where you say, the Lord's all I got. But there'll probably be a few times in your life when you find yourself not necessarily all alone, but you're in a circumstance that's beyond anything that you know how to solve on your own. And what do you do? You cry out. Lord, help me in this moment. And that song we sang about Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I, I have seen, just a handful of times, I don't have a word to say, 
And if, you know, I'm so mad if I did say something, oh, boy, would that, that would ruin everything. So Holy Spirit, take charge. That's what Paul seems to ask for. And he says, that's what God did. I pray that you are aware, even though maybe you do not feel it all the time, but you do know God's presence is with you and his presence is there so that you have enough of God to face your fears. You are not alone. You're not. And I think that's worth giving thanks for. Let's pray together. Almighty God, in this series where we are facing our fears, The idea is we let our deepest fears drive us to you and your resources that you provide. For those of us who fear disconnection, struggle with loneliness, we ask that you would help us to seek those who follow you and are modeling their lives after you. May your people show up and not desert us. And may they show your true compassion. Not just being there, but looking for how they can care for our needs. And God, I want to be one of those people who shows up. Just doesn't give a practice speech. but Just looks for needs. Can I do this? But also may we know that you have promised you will never leave us nor forsake us. You show up through friends. You show up through friends who show us compassion. But may we truly experience your presence as you have promised in your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.